You're listening to Cabrini Conversations, a podcast series that brings faculty together for cavalier conversations on research, current events, and pop culture. Hello, welcome to Conversations Podcast. My name is Dr. Courtney Smith. My name is Dr. Jolene Gerard. My name is Dr. Daryl Mace. And we're here today to talk about the development of a three-volume set that we just recently published called America's History Through Its Greatest Speeches. And since I wrote the first volume or was the editor for the first volume, I'm going to begin. And this process began several years ago. We believe it started in 2014. And it was a development that actually came to us from Dr. Gerard. And so do you want to talk sure. about that a little bit? Mike Milman, who is one of the major editors at ABC, Cleo Prager, for whom I'd written a couple of other books like this, called me and asked uh, if I would be interested in doing a three-volume set on America's uh, greatest speeches. And I said I would be interested. Uh, would I be able to pick the other two people to write the uh, other two volumes? And he, of course, agreed. And I had two perfect people here in the history and political science department, both young scholars that I knew could handle the job. So I asked Courtney uh, to write the first volume, which she can talk about. Uh, Darrell wrote the second volume, and I wrote the uh, third volume, which dealt with the 20th and 21st centuries. Darrell? Yes, sir. What do you think? I think it was an interesting experience coming up with who's going to write what and what what dates we were actually going to um, attribute to each volume. So it would be logical and easy to do colonial into 19th century, which is technically what we did, um, and then uh, have a 20th century volume, which you wrote, uh, Dr. Gerard wrote. But uh, we had a little debate about where we were actually going to break off mm-hmm. and begin the 19th century. Um, Yes. That, was, that was hard for you. It was definitely difficult. And that was difficult for me as well. I took the colonial volume, well, really the first volume, because I enjoy colonial American history, mm-hmm. particularly since I like local history, and Philadelphia and the surrounding areas has a great deal of contacts that yeah. are related to colonial history. For example, Independence Hall. William Penn and founding Pennsylvania and how much how how influential that was. But the difficult thing for me is in the colonial and early republic, things like television and radio didn't exist. So one thing that I had to do before selecting each of the speeches that went in the volume was determine that this speech actually took place. And in order to do that, I needed confirmation from several sources that this speech did exist. And and then, of course, there was a debate that we had with the publisher about what constitutes a speech. And this really was related to the volume that I did because many things that were that I put in into the volume may not fit the conventional definition of speech. For example, songs from the revolutionary mm-hmm. period is that considered a speech? And through discussions with the publisher, we decided that yes, that in fact, the songs that were part of the revolutionary era that were sung throughout the new United States 
were spoken words mm -hmm. and therefore fit a broad definition of what a speech is. And so because of, of all of those considerations, we actually extended the first volume to the year 1815 mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because it encompassed not just the colonial era, but it also encompassed the early republic and then the War of 1812. And through the War of 1812, I was able to find speeches on the congressional record that obviously have evidence that they were delivered to people who were in Congress, and then also speeches that were written and not delivered orally like State of the Union addresses, but they were meant to be speeches and they were meant to be shared orally. Yeah, and that actually then allowed me to enter more into my comfort level, um, not as comfortable with the early 19th uh, century, regular 19th century, but if, since we went through the early republic, or since Dr. Smith went through the early republic, it allowed me to enter into the era of good feelings and then really move that into the antebellum period and my um, kind of focus area is African-American history. So to be able to look at um, the antebellum movement, uh, antebellum period, anti-slavery movement, was really right in my wheelhouse. And my problem was the reverse. There are too many people in the 20th century who said too much mm -hmm. uh, and, and parsing that. And additionally, royalties played a major consideration in my work. Martin Luther King's great speech is not in the book because it was too expensive for the publishers to pay the royalty costs. Mm -hmm. um, Lou Gehrig, the famous New York Yankee first baseman, I wanted to use his farewell speech in Yankee Stadium which I consider one of the great speeches of all time. It had nothing to do with politics. We couldn't use it because the publisher wasn't willing to pay the royalty. Uh, so I had different problems. Courtney had different problems. Mm -hmm. Daryl had different problems. But what we were all able to do was put together a template. The other problem with these volumes is Daryl's timeline and Courtney's and mine have to look the same in the book. Uh, when we do the biographies of everybody, they have to be the same. When you introduce the particular speech, the who, what, why, where, when, that all has to be in a system where a student or a reader can open the book and know whether he's reading Daryl's or Courtney's or mine. I know when I turn the page on this, I'm going to see the same thing in the same way. And we did a lot of work on getting that together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's hard work. Dorothy Parker said, I hate writing. I love having written. <laughs> and I think you could argue that this was that kind of project. I hated doing this project, but I love finishing it. And it helped that Dr. Gerard had written uh, books like this in the past. So um, he was actually able, in part because he's retired, to have developed a template. Hey. For, you have a little bit more time on your hands. That's a compliment. <laughs> Uh, to develop the templates for us. So Dr. Smith and I were actually really able to build our volumes off of, um, and in fact, in some cases, as I was just going back through um, some old files of mine to try to figure out when we really did start this, mm -hmm. I have some files that are part my words and part your words because I was just writing right on top of your document. Mm -hmm. Yes, and we got from Dr. Gerard, we got templates for everything that needed to go into each of our volumes, the timeline, the historical overview, the headnotes, and the headnotes are the parts 
the speech that introduced it, that put it into a context, say when it was delivered, who was in the audience, if we could tell who was in the audience, what was the intent of this speech, and then also what what the publisher calls sidebars, which are just tidbits of information. Like for example, I had a rather lovely sidebar on, I believe, the way that George Washington died. Mm-hmm. Um, wasn't pleasant, obviously, being 1799, but it was still, it was an interesting tidbit that added to kind of the flavor of each volume. And we made all of this explicit. Uh, it, it, to understand it, it's complicated. We're, we're, we're technically editors of these volumes, but I wrote 80,000 words for mine, and so did they, mm-hmm. it, it, reasonably. Mm-hmm. So I've always referred, and the publisher goes along with the fact that we were author slash editors. And, and that was the difference. There's not a speech that's in this, within reason, that can't be found online. And you can find Martin Luther King's speech online. You can find Lou Gehrig's speech. So when they proposed this to me, I said, the only reason I could see us doing this is because you have three historians who will do more than just put the speech on paper. We will give it an historical background. We will give you information about the authors of the speeches. We will be able to synchronize that sort of thing to the point where the student or the reader is getting more out of this than just the words of the speaker. Those words are surrounded by three historians who've studied and researched the period and can give it some sense of purpose. And that sense of purpose, I think, was one of the... I mean, all three of us have written monograph works. Uh, yes. We are the single author. And this was so much different and harder, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, even though the research was more extensive for the monograph that I wrote and the monographs that we've written and took a little bit more time, it took more time, the, it's, it's trying to have a narrative flow when you're analyzing kind of 250 to 300 words per speech, um, doing the intro to each chapter, putting the sidebars in, and really making a narrative um, flow to it is really complicated. It takes a lot of editing and a lot of thinking about where am I going to put the speeches? Where do the sidebars even go? Which speech yeah. should I put a sidebar with? Exactly. What needs more context? And and so um, and and in that kind of intro to the par- or intro to the chapter, really trying to outline exactly what you're trying to do with each speech that's in that chapter. It was really really. And that also played a role into selecting the speeches because mm-hmm. they they need to move chronologically, and we as the author slash editors have to take the reader through this chronological journey through American history. And so each speech, in a way, has to relate to the one before it and then lead to the one after it. And mm-hmm. so one thing that I did was after the Boston Massacre, there would be annual orations in the city of Boston by famous people like John Hancock, and that was something that I would bring up. And so I was afraid that it might be repetitive. Here's so here's another oration or speech in honor of the Boston Massacre, but it actually made sense in the wider volume because it provided a chronological journey through the reader from here they were in 1770 and as we're getting closer to that very fateful year 1776 Mm -hmm. you can see the progression of the anger against Great Britain and of the dawning realization that we're Americans we're not British and so the only logical conclusion to this is declaring independence yeah I had a a similar somewhat similar experience um the 
one of the chapters is very heavily focused on Abraham Lincoln, uh, logically, because uh, he's one, known as one of our greatest orators, uh, one of the greatest presidential orators. And he was an awful speaker, an awful speaker early on in his career. He was a lawyer. Um, even his law partner said, you have to cut your speeches. These things are awful. No one can understand what you're saying. And um, so part of that was I felt I, I was torn between do I have too much Abraham Lincoln in this? But really what I was doing was showing a progression of Abraham Lincoln from his early years as a uh, kind of burgeoning politician and lawyer to, you know, this guy who can put together the, the, the Gettysburg Address that's just so succinct and so to the point. But he honed his skills based on lots of experience and, and understanding what the people wanted to hear. Mm -hmm. now, and we did a lot of additional things playing off of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address we talked earlier. My volume dealt with a completely different communication system. Mm -hmm. Radio and television changed the nature of speeches. And where Lincoln may have given that Gettysburg Address to what, there are seven, six, seven thousand yeah. people? When Franklin Roosevelt gave a fire search, had 25 million Americans were listening. Mm -hmm. uh, and when uh, Lyndon Johnson uh, said he would not run for a second term, 30 to 40 million Americans were listening to that mm -hmm. speech on television. And that communication medium changes. It opens up the door to people who otherwise would not speak because now they have access. Think of what we do today with all the ways you can talk. But I had to make the point as we went from Lincoln into this that having access to all of these areas to speak doesn't necessarily mean you're going to hear the right things or appropriate things or correct things. And that has to be taken into consideration. Uh, a speech may not necessarily be a great speech, whether 50 million people listen <laughs> to it or 10. And we've had enough of the bad ones of late, and I'm not just talking about current politics. It's true, it's true. And, and when you think about um, you know, mass media, you think about television and, and, and radio, and now you know, into, the, into um, uh, social media, everything is recorded, and you have the copy of the original mm -hmm. text. There, there are multiple copies of the Gettysburg Address, and I chose to put the Bliss copy in, but no one has an original copy of what it was exactly said during the Gettysburg Address. And then another problem that I ran into is when I was compiling my preliminary list of speeches that I wanted to uh, put into the volume, I realized they were all from white men. Mm -hmm. And that really led me to think, what could I add that would show that colonial America to provide a different perspective, a different um, view on what was happening in colonial America. And so I actually ended up doing a few testimonies from the Salem witchcraft trials mm -hmm. because women's speeches, one woman did not s deliver speeches. Women right. did not have that kind of political voice. If mm -hmm. they did deliver speeches, they weren't recorded. But the testimonies from the Salem witchcraft trials were, and so from the colonial times, testimony from women like Anne Hutchinson, a woman who was also on trial, and women who were on trial for witchcraft, well, that's it. And so the only really, the only really memory that you have of that from colonial America are women who were put on trial for, doing, for allegedly doing something that they should not have done. And then later on into the... Uh, into the 1700s and into the early 1800s, I could find some from African-Americans, like, for example, Bishop Richard Allen, other people who were delivering speeches in commemoration of the ending of the um, transatlantic slave trade. Mm -hmm. But still, it's limited. And I think that really gives you a perspective on whose speeches were recorded, whose voices were recorded in history. And now that everything is recorded, 
that wasn't the case. Yeah, look at my volume. Yeah. <laughs> Many of the speakers in my volume were women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the cover of the my cover. volume is Gloria Steinem. Right. Uh, so, I mean, that, it shows that kind of change as well. The other thing I think we all need to talk about is the audience that reads these. Uh, writers traditionally, and historians specific, specifically, have to consider their audience. If, if I'm writing a monograph or if I'm writing a scholarly article for my colleagues, it's a very different tone of writing than these volumes mm -hmm. that are written primarily for high school and college age students. These are things that they get out of libraries to, to read, and you have to keep that in mind when you're writing this material. You get a little too pedantic, you start using too many fancy words or getting into some esoteric dialogue, uh, you lose them, and you have to be careful in that regard with the speeches as well. Yeah, they have to be speeches that speak to them. And as I was thinking about and selecting the speeches, I was thinking, well, if I was going to write a book report or if I was going to write a research paper on 19th century America, what kind of sources might I go to? And, and then thinking about the diversity of the student bodies, you know, so maybe I want to do something on slavery. Maybe I want to do something on um, religious revivalism. Maybe I want to do something on um, um, kind of global religious movements. So I have to really think about speeches or, or um, the first wave of feminism. Yep. Mm -hmm. Really think about things that speak to the students. Yeah, I put a speech in there by Russell Means, who was a Native American activist. He was also in Last of the Mohicans, the movie. And it, 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 the speech is entitled, Europe Must Die. Mm -hmm. And the editor actually got in touch with me and said, what? it's a long speech. So I said, what's this doing? I said, is, are there any speeches in any of these volumes ever written or ever delivered by an American Indian? Mm -hmm. And he said, I can't think of it. And I mm -hmm. said, well, I found one. And boy, is it a Lulu. And he said, OK. <laughs> so who? Somebody has to hear his voice, too. Yeah. I have, a, I have a speech uh, about the ghost dance. Yeah. Uh, made sure to have Native American voices mm -hmm. in there. I wanted to have more speeches by American Indians from the colonial and early republic, but they, went, they weren't recorded. I'm sure yeah. that there were some, um, but the ones that were recorded, and I think I make a note of this in the volume, they were recorded as part of treaties by mm -hmm. interpreters who may have had their own agendas. And so what you're reading should be taken with a grain of salt, that this may not necessarily be what the people in attendance thought they were saying, but this is what was interpreted as them mm -hmm. saying. And because these treaties involved the transfer of land that white settlers in Pennsylvania and other colonies wanted, keep that in mind as you read this. But it, it's difficult. Yeah, it's, Russell it's very covered difficult. the yeah. <laughs> Get the book and read that speech. Yeah. I was about to move back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, in, um, in, a, in a little bit, we're actually going to have a little program um, in commemoration or celebration of this these three volumes that are coming out. And we've been asked to think about our favorite speech in our sure. volume, which is really difficult. hundred, uh, I think I'm close to a hundred. You have over a hundred speeches. Over yeah. yeah. Um, and you, know, you, you had me thinking about uh, the Europe must die. I, um, you know I, that I do know that yeah. speech. Yeah. Um, and the speech I'm going to talk about from the 19th century volume is uh, Frederick Douglass's What's the Slave is the Fourth of July. It's a yeah. scathing critique of uh, the Fourth of July and, and that it doesn't really mean anything for African-Americans. Yeah. At the time. Where do you do a wonderful one like Clarence Darrow's defense of Leopold oh, and Loeb yeah. and, and the criticizing the death penalty, which I read again last night, and that's a monster. Uh, 
put it as one of the most eloquent defenses to do away with the death penalty. Absolutely. He doesn't, he doesn't deny their guilt, mm -hmm. but he wonders whether the death penalty is the If you were opposed to the death penalty, mm -hmm. don't go see the Susan Sarandon movie. Get Clarence Darrow's speech on Leopold and Loeb. And, and you need to note that it worked, and Leopold and Loeb were not executed. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to pick one, because I like Russell Means. I like uh, the, the, the woman, I, I, Terrell. Uh, Mary Church Terrell? Yeah, yeah. Mary Church Terrell. Mm -hmm. uh, they're just too many. They're, you can't pick a favorite. My actual favorite is Lou Gehrig, but they wouldn't let me print it. Well, you could read it. <laughs> my favorite ones from my volume have to do with the Constitutional Convention and with the, the build up to the revolution and and then afterwards with the convention and those speeches, again, they've been preserved. Are they exactly what was said at, at the Philadelphia Convention? Possibly, possibly not, but still there, for many of them, like, especially the ones from Ben Franklin, what you really see in his, in his speeches is just the wonderful way that he was able to analyze and really deliver a, cl a clear, cogent idea of what it means to be American and why the, the colonists, now Americans, are doing this. And then at the end there, at, near the end of his life, when he was at the Philadelphia Convention as his elder statesman, hmm. delivering this final address to those in attendance, really trying to convey the wisdom of his years to the people. Is he the greatest there. speaker of your book? I would say, well, I'm biased. We share a birthday, so I'm biased when it comes to Ben Franklin. <laughs> We're all biased. Do you, do you like Franklin the I best? do like Franklin, yeah. yes. How about you, Del? Who's your favorite? In the book or in general? In general. In general? Um, Barbara Jordan. You have Barbara Jordan's speech. I do. Yeah. I have her speech, her impeachment speech. Her impeachment speech. I think that was one of the greatest pieces of American rhetoric. Should I steal that and, and tell, is that what I should tell That's Jeff? what you should tell Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> but for my volume, I'd say it probably goes between um, Frederick Douglass and, uh, and William Lloyd Garrison. William Lloyd Garrison are the real, yeah. yeah. I have too many. I wanted Churchill. His mother was American. She was, and he gave that great Iron Curtain speech yeah. at Fulton, Missouri. They print, they took it, and then they wanted too much royalty. Um, royalty killed, killed my favorite speeches. Yeah. King, Churchill, and Lou Gehrig. Right. In my mind, three of the great, completely dis, disinterested, different speeches of all time. Couldn't print any of them. Couldn't print any of them. Yeah. Couldn't print any of them, because they want too much money. And that's a problem mm -hmm. that, we, that you run into, not just with these types of books, but even uh, you know, in our monographs, thinking about speeches. I, I wanted to use the text from um, Billy Holiday's Strange Fruit, and I couldn't even find somebody to get on the phone to ask if I could use Strange Fruit. So I actually used a Abel Miropol's poem, uh, Bitter Fruit, which is where the song came from. Um, and, and also pictures. Yes. Images are just so... You would think expensive. for baseball that it wouldn't be that hard yeah. to, find, to find good <laughs> kid, photographs. I, I thought they would die, and I actually thought the publishers would pay for it. It's such a great speech. Mm -hmm. But the other thing about the kind of work that the three of us just did, it's money-driven. These are publishers who publish these books for money, and they expect to get money out of what we do. And... Uh, in many ways, these two, if they continue to do this, will make more money writing these author-edited texts 
than they will writing their own monographs. We'll lose a lot more hair also. So the, the bottom line on all of this is, <laughs> and I'm giving them advice, and I'm mm -hmm. going to say that to anybody at this meeting that wants to know. One of the reasons they continued to ask me to do this stuff was because I met deadlines. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I guaranteed the publishers that these two people would meet their deadlines. And they did. Mm -hmm. And they did. And we had friendly competition about meeting deadlines. Well, <laughs> Dr. Smith and I had friendly competitions. You were done the book before they asked you to do it. Because I'm retired. But competition and how many speeches could you get in? Three hours of late nights. See, we, I work better over. The, I did this all, all entirely over the summer, and so I did it late nights. And when the Phillies would be on the West Coast, that was the greatest time because then you could stay up to one a.m. watching baseball. And of course, it was we were writing. I was writing this story in 2015, so they were terrible. <laughs> but there was still something to you know keep me occupied as I'm trying to think. Okay, how do I? What's the head note for this author? Mm -hmm. What's the head note for this speaker? Yeah. How did, when did you, I, I worked every morning from 7 till 10. I lit a cigar, sat in the... <laughs> I, serious, I, I, I smoke a cigar in the morning, lit the cigar, and worked from 7 until 10 o'clock in the morning, put it away, next day, same thing. I work pretty much all the time from about 11 to 2 a.m. 11 p.m.? No, 11 p.m. to 2 Yeah, that's what I mean, 11 p.m. Oh, to 2 a.m. Yeah. So you're night workers. Yes. For me, it was more afternoon and evening. Yeah, see, at my age, I take naps Oh, I take a nap before 11 o'clock when I start working. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm a morning guy, and you t which is maybe why I got done before you did. Well, no, that was retirement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was also teaching two courses for you, you know, so I don't want to hear that. I was teaching a couple courses for me, too. Uh, <laughs> we had a lot of fun. Here's, as the set editor, let me tell you, I had no real problems with either one of these two that couldn't be easily worked out, like her being able to use songs. Mm -hmm. What Michael Milman told me, the guy who's the chief editor at the end of this, was that this was the first time that they put a set together where he didn't have to chase down the authors to get them moving, to get them to do something, or to solve a problem. Either I solved it as the set editor, or these two solved it as their own volume editor writers. And he was very much impressed to the point where he said, if, if other projects come up, Daryl and Courtney are two of the people he's going to turn to for help. I think we were able to anticipate problems also. Mm -hmm. Because we were meeting deadlines, we could think about what the idea of right. whether, you know, um, presidential address. Um, right, because State of the Union, after talk about bad uh, bad orders, Jefferson wasn't a good order at all. <laughs> right. And so he started the tradition until Wilson of delivering the State of the Union address in writing only, mm -hmm. not actually standing in front of a joint session of Congress and delivering it. Mm -hmm. And so the question he was, started. well, mm -hmm. do we... Do we count that as a speech? And the answer was yes, yes. we do. Because yeah. yeah. we could make the argument mm -hmm. for it. Same thing with a lot of these, a lot of, in my volume, they had sermons. Because a lot of the ab abolitionist yes. movement was run through churches. And do those sermons count as speech? And in the set introduction, I, mm -hmm. I made that clear. Mm -hmm. So that there would be nobody coming back saying, well, as I said, we're going to include every form of oratory in which a person or people which could mean songs as well, speak mm -hmm. to another group of people. Right. And the editors bought it. Because yeah. otherwise... You know. I, otherwise I wouldn't have been able to fill a volume because how do you do that with colonial era? 
Many people didn't give speeches. Quakers didn't give speeches. That had bothered me because of the you know the attachment to this area. Mm-hmm. And honorably, they are speeches. And they are speeches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oratory, by definition, is the way we defined it. So yes. I, I, I wasn't cheating to get around something. Mm-hmm. I was simply expanding the ability to show the reader that a sermon or a song mm-hmm. is as much a speech as a Huey Long mm-hmm. You know, chicken in every pot kind and, of and I think the key to it also is these are discourses that foster greater dialogue. Mm-hmm. And, that, and I think that's what comes out in all three volumes is these are things that have been said or written that really foster dialogue about, about what American history is, what it is to be American, that a, whole, a lot of identity kind of politics mm-hmm. and identity issues uh, flow throughout th- all three volumes. I would go back to Dorothy Parker. Writing, I hate writing. Having written is wonderful. I love having written. I could not have picked two better people. If I'd had to pick two people from outside Cabrini that I didn't know or couldn't trust, but working with Daryl and working with Courtney made this job as hard as it was, made it a hell of a lot easier. And that's nice, that was a nice thing, too. Uh, we each were able to write our own acknowledgments. Mm-hmm. So yeah. if you read each volume, there, there are people that I bounced ideas off. Of, obviously, these two, but other people in the department, other people on the campus. Um, it's really nice. We had fun.